Welcome back to another episode of the Daily Wisdom Words Podcast, where every week we talk to folks who have stories, advice, and life hacks, all of which take you one step closer to that feeling of hope. I'm your host, Neil Trevetti, and I'm so privileged today to be joined by Jenny Helms Calvin, a licensed therapist and founder of what I believe is the biggest mental health organization in Kansas. Right? Soma Therapy? Yeah, it's, yes, it's the biggest group practice in Kansas. Wonderful. And we will definitely get into that a little bit and talk about how that got started. But before we do that, uh, can we start with a little bit of your background and how, you know, what led you to do what you do today? Because I know, uh, doing my research on you, that when you were younger, you didn't have the most positive opinion on therapy, right? For all the wonderful work that you do, <laughs> it, it didn't quite start out that way, right? No, no, it didn't. Actually, I, uh, my first experiences with therapy, I was in middle school and I was struggling a lot with, I didn't really realize it at the time, but it was uh, a lot of depression. Um, and this was before I even had uh, struggles with my eating disorder later on. But, um, and my, my mom would bring me into these therapy sessions. And I remember just thinking, man, these therapists must have like, I thought they were, were dumb, but I also thought they were smart because I was like, they're dumb because they're not doing anything. But I also thought they were smart because they were getting paid to not do anything. So it's like a mixed bag of, of not really buying into the process yet, not really understanding it. But truly I wasn't, I mean, when I was a teen, there were parts of it that were mainly about me and how ready I was. Um, I also just felt the first three therapists I had experiences with, they just weren't the best fit for where I was in my life and the angstiness that I had as a teen. Like I was, I was kind of a pain in the ass, admittedly. Like I just was not really ready to open up. Um, I would give them a hard time. And my fourth therapist was the one that I really connected with. And I think part of that was because she wasn't scared of that. She wasn't scared that I was you know, such a pain in the ass. And she even, you know, our first session, she was like, well, I don't want to waste my time or yours. There's the door. And I remember just being like, okay, I'm all ears. Like I'm ready to listen now, which I know is stubborn, but it was exactly what I needed because I just came in with a really bad perspective. Yeah. As, as so many people do at that age, right? Because I, I shared similar feelings when I was younger. It's like, no, I'm not crazy. Why should I go see the, <laughs> Like, I don't need a shrink. What, like, you know, so, uh, but yeah, that's wonderful. And, and look where you are now, right? Full circle. Like now you're doing exactly, but. <laughs> I know, not only doing it, but I'm like preaching it. So it's really funny that right. I would end up here. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into attachment trauma, I wanted to ask, what is one thing that maybe you had a what's the biggest misconception you had aside from the fact that therapists are frauds <laughs> but aside from that that you are now putting it into your practice today like what do you think like okay wait a minute I thought this when I was younger so let me clear this up by doing this in my own practice what's one or two things like that for you I think the thing that I find a lot, even in my own journey and a lot of my clients and people and the therapists I've talked with when we have our team meetings is just the idea that people get used to being in dysfunction. Like they get yeah. so, it's almost like a normal for them. And so I feel like one of the biggest misconceptions that I see is that a lot of people don't realize that there are 
better ways of being that there are like that they don't have to live a life of dysfunction and and that you know i think people often think trauma is just these really big events or even attachment trauma they think yeah. it has to be like my parents got divorced or things that are bigger events but they don't realize that it's often the subtle chronic things for people that yeah. like, there's these yeah. subtle ways that people are are wounded and are, are struggling yeah. to respond and, and be act in healthy ways and be healthy. And they, they feel like it's, I feel like it gets uh, normalized in a way so that people don't realize there is hope, there is healing, there is another way of, of being and that your relationship with yourself and other people can be so much better. Speaking of, let's get into it. What, uh, what is exactly for those who may not be familiar, what defines attachment trauma? So I feel like it's a loaded word in the sense that I, I, mean, I kind of have <laughs> right. an expanded definition, but if we're talking about, um, we're going back to like Boldy and Susan, um, oh gosh, now I'm totally blanking on her last name, but the founders of, you know, this attachment research and all of that, they, they label it mostly as, you know, the interactions that you had in early childhood. And it's really interesting. Some of this research, it actually dates back to when we're in the womb. So it's not just mm, when we're out okay. of the womb, but actually there's there's things that can happen with us internally when we're in the womb. If our, you know, if we actually, when we're in the womb, we can pick up on the environment outside of the womb and the distress yeah. of the mother as well. And so right. there are different pieces where it can even start back that early. And it's it's the subtle ways that we develop and either our nervous system says I'm safe and I can connect mm -hmm or it says I'm unsafe and I have to protect. I mean, without, yeah. you know, that's a very simplified version of it, but yeah, the different ways that yeah. we figure out like, how can I connect and be safe? And how, mm -hmm. or am I not safe and I need to protect myself? And here are some of the different strategies that I developed to protect myself because things were not, when I say safe, I mean, emotionally safe. That's another thing. When I say yeah. safe, people are like, no one punched me. And I'm like, oh, I'm not talking like physical. <laughs> abuse right. necessarily although that can be part of it but it's yeah. actually usually not physical it's all these other ways that we just did not feel safe or comfortable or um ways that we we might play roles in our family system because there's dysfunction and so as we age we develop yeah. attachment trauma or even developmental trauma in the ways that mm -hmm. we survived some of those environments that were unsafe you mentioned like yeah the signs in the womb and so early which can be i would imagine especially if you're young pretty difficult to spot right at that time and, and also as a kid you're not really sure of the complexity of mental health and trauma and i would depression or anything else so what i mean is there a general like age or demographic where people start realizing okay something's wrong here i've been leading my life this way like maybe subtle signs of it. Is there a way to recognize certain things as you get older or does it really just all depend on the person and their situation? That's a good question because I want to give this something like I do think that there are periods of time where this tends to come out more. So puberty, for <laughs> instance, when we're starting to actually have hormones and develop more relationships with people, that's usually the first benchmark where we see things. Although some people, this happens prior to that. Like they start to see signs when they're really, well, you can see signs when you're really little and in elementary school, they just look very different because developmentally we express it differently. 
But as far as like how we interact in relationships, a lot of that starts unfolding for people in middle school, high school, when they have more intimate relationships. Some people don't realize they have attachment trauma until they're in their first serious relationship. And it's, you know, right. past a certain period of time. And they're like, I've never felt this way with a person. I've never been this way or acted out in this way. But now that I'm in a more serious relationship or now that we're engaged or now that we're having kids, like it's typically certain milestones that can trigger that for people, even when they have kids that are age, like the ages that they were when they had certain attachment wounds and trauma, that's when it can come out too, where they start to have behaviors because something about their kids being that age too triggers something in them. So I don't know that it's like a specific age group, but I think there's usually these these milestones that it can that we see it being related to. What are examples of that? Like when you say like, okay, sometimes it may come up in your first relationship. What exactly is that? Like what what kind of stuff comes up? Generally speaking, in very broad terms, of course. Yeah. So if we bring it down to the normal categories, we're looking at people struggling with what we would call an anxious attachment, an avoidant attachment, or disorganized attachment. When somebody is struggling with an anxious attachment in a relationship, they're going to engage in behaviors where they need more reassurance from their partner that, you know, they love them, that they're going to be there for them. Um, They may find themselves wanting to keep tabs or have more control over the relationship. Again, from usually from anxiety. So this would be a person that would never consider themselves controlling, but all of a sudden they're in a relationship and they wanna have information. They wanna know what's going on. They might set a lot of boundaries. Um, they, you know, if they have a fight, they need to resolve it then and there. And even if the person like, you know, even if in the moment, you know, big picture, it's a better idea to give it some time, let both people's nervous systems regulate and then come back to it. Like during that period of time that they have to wait, they feel incredibly anxious. Um, And Uh, so those are just like a few signs of of that type of attachment style. Um, And typically too, for anxious, anxious attachment folks, they tend to be people pleasers. They tend to be people that are perfectionists. They want to make sure everybody else is taken care of. Um, rescuers, that sort of thing. Um, And then for avoidant attachment, this is going to be a person that, you know, when they're in a relationship, if they're, when there starts to be conflict and tension, because any relationship will come with that, um, they will withdraw. And they might withdraw and say, like, I'm just going to not talk about this. And then we'll just like pretend like this isn't a thing in our relationship and not talk about it. Uh, Or sometimes they even leave those relationships Um, and kind of bounce from relationship to relationship because they cannot tolerate that discomfort of when tension and conflict happens. Um, They actually have a lot of anxiety too. That's the funny part is anxious people tend to be like, I don't have, I don't have anxiety. Like people are just so clingy, blah, blah, blah. But really their anxiety manifests in that they just pull away and that they can't tolerate it at all. And so they go into a protection mode um, and sometimes, and they tend to blame it on the other person. They're like, they're just not as interesting. I've lost interest. Um, I just don't, I'm just not a relationship person. Those are different ways that avoidant attachment can manifest. Um, Again, they still have anxiety, but they, they will push people away. They don't want to talk about conflict. Um, When they do, they try to make it as brief as possible. 
Um, just their tolerance yeah. to be intimate is really, really low. Like they struggle with intimacy. It's dangerous. Um, so the way that they protect right. themselves is they don't get too intimate. And then yeah. the last one, and I'm joking about this, but I call it kind of, it's a little bit fun in the sense that it's both styles mixed together. It's called disorganized. And so this is going to be a person that tends to oscillate between the two where they, you know, one day they're struggling more with anxiety and they're like, I need this person to give me validation and I want to fix things and let's, you know, let's talk about stuff. And then the next day they're like, screw you. I don't know if this relationship is really worth it. Like, I don't want to talk about stuff. So they oscillate between the two. Um, and yeah. that, and I, again, I joke that it's fun because it's obviously not fun, but right. it's, it's when you've kind of gotten an interesting uh, push pull in the attachment that you've had, you've had a combination of things where your nervous system feels unsafe in both environments. What are some ways that, especially laymen like us who are not therapists or in the medical field, what can we do in general to approach people like that to make them feel safe? How do we become more trauma-informed around those people who are going through that? The biggest thing that we can do personally and as professionals is to make sure that we are healing our own attachment wounds and that we are as, because no one's like 100% secure. The secure attachment is the ideal, but no one's 100% secure all the time right. we're all human yeah. but in of the ways course. that you know yeah in the ways that you know you have these wounds that you are doing your work so that when people are in struggle it doesn't trigger you and you're not taking it personally because the person right. so a, a secure person can actually be in a relationship with somebody who has any of the like insecure attachment styles <laughs> But it can be, it, they really do have to have a strong sense of themselves because they have to be able to not get pulled into the mess of whatever that other person is struggling with and to not take it personally, to see it as this person is wounded. This is the yeah. way that they're approaching it. And I'm going to not chase after them and push them into like having intimate conversations, but I'm also not going to avoid these conversations. I'm going to maintain my calm and I'll be open and here for this person when they're ready to talk about it. It's knowing yourself and staying as calm and non-anxious when you have a friend or your intimate partner is just, I mean, man, I experienced this myself and, and I, I have my own attachment wounds too. So when I've been, I've actually been in the moment, been able to kind of separate myself sometimes um, in the past, I used to take it very personally. So I want to tell on myself, like I used to really, really struggle with this and I still can if it's really triggering one of my personal wounds, but there have been, a, there's been a lot of healing in my own journey. And so there are moments I've been able to sit with like friends, colleagues, clients, and my own partner where you can just, you start to see it and you don't, you don't take it personally. Like you're still able to maintain mm. your sense of calm and say, I'm here when you're ready. You yeah. Know, I still love you. Even if they're like, you're a total a-hole and you're like, okay, I can hear you saying that you feel that way. Right. <laughs> like it's, and it's not like right. demeaning yeah. either. It's not like you're demeaning them. It's like, you're just like, all right, like that's, that's the space you're in right now, but I don't have to take that personally. Um, there's yeah. something going on for you right now. Let's talk about this later when they're not, escalated because that's I mean you can usually see when a person's escalated and it's saying like I'm not gonna join them in that and I'm not gonna right 
here's my guess. So I want to throw this out here because if there's a lot of therapists Please. and um, rescuers and, and helpers listening to this, yeah, you need to let people be anxious and be struggling because what therapists mm-hmm. and other professionals will do, like the way that they're insecure is they try to rescue people. So when someone's anxious and you're struggling, we're like very like, oh, let me rescue you and fix it for you and problem solve yeah. for you. That's actually not a secure way of approaching that. And in right. fact, it can be very disempowering because the other person may become like, they start to kind of play into this role where they may be like, oh, I need you to help me fix this. And I don't, I can't come up with solutions myself. And anyway, that's a whole other rabbit hole. But I think that um, (laughs) (laughs) picture that we're able to sit with people and not just try to fix it, not try to problem solve. And this becomes our friends too, that we're just like, Hey, I love you. And I'm just going to hold space for you and, and let me know what you need. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point because it's not just like therapists, even friends, if we love somebody, right? It's natural tendency to have that first things to build. Let me try to fix it for you. And not, and you don't mean for it to be more triggering or more harmful, but, but that's something that I've learned over the years too, because I've had clinical depression and now I, I've come to my own realization that I really don't want people to say, well, here, let me come over and we'll watch a sitcom together and we'll watch a, you know, we'll do this for fun. And it's like, no, it's more, you know, healthier for me to let it out in, in healthier ways, of course, but let those feelings out and deal with them rather than try to suppress them. Right. That's, yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And not unintentionally disempower that person. Right. Yeah, it's great. And we'll talk a little bit about the grounding techniques and what some people can do. But along with that, that has to be coupled with proper therapy. So, and this is so tell us about I know, as we mentioned earlier, that you have one of the largest mental health therapy practices in Kansas. Tell us how did SOMA come about? Yeah. So, I, so about four years ago, almost. So February 1st will be our four year anniversary. Um, I, well, I was already planning to, to open Soma and I had two other business owners on board with me originally. So it wasn't like I had all this courage to go out and do it on my own. I was like, Oh, they've done this business before. Like I'm going to partner with them. We're going to create this awesome thing for Wichita. Let's do this. And there was a lot of stuff that came up for them that in the end, basically, you know, one, uh, told me, Hey, I'm not going to be able to work with you on this. And then the day before we were going to sign our contracts, the other one was like, Hey, I can't do this either. And again, they have their reasons and, you know, they're humans and they get to have made that decision. But for me, I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I don't know if I can do this by myself. Like that was kind of this moment of freak out that I, had, you know, I did have a lot of self-doubt and I was like, I don't know if I can do this, but I ultimately decided that I was going to give myself one year and put my energy and my effort into it and see what would happen. And sure enough, like luckily enough that first year I made a lot of mistakes, but I fell in love with the process. I grew a ton. Um, and by the end of the year, you know, we had broken even and I was just, I was loving it. I was like, yes, I feel like this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Um, And I'm really grateful. I actually did get to do it on my own because I think I grew so much more and Soma grew so much more because of that. And so I wasn't like super brave at first. Like it was kind of like I was like pushed into it by life, but 
Um, yeah. Ultimately, um, I made that uh, decision and I have not regretted it at all. I'm so grateful for what we've created. And I have an amazing team now that helps and supports things because again, as you grow bigger, like you need, you need other humans. So it's not just me anymore. Um, it's other people in the leadership team, um, including like my husband, my practice manager, other folks like they, we all now make Soma and I have another practice as well called new perspectives. Um, that's a, we acquired that one. That's another local practice here in Wichita. And so we, uh, yeah, we love what we do and we're hoping to just serve our community and help heal trauma. Yeah, I can tell you, I don't even live in Kansas. Your customer service is the best because I was trying to track like your email down when I first wanted to invite you. And immediately I sent out a query on your website and couple of your team members reached out and said, hi, thank you so much. And they were so polite and pointed me in the right direction to like say, this is where you can email Jenny. And I'm like, wow, that, and it was fast too. I'm like within five minutes. <laughs> so kudos to that. Yeah, thank you're, you. you're definitely awesome. doing it. Yeah. That's so, awesome. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, uh, when people are going through attachment or you have, so, I know Soma covers so many areas of mental health and people can check that out. I will be sure to link your website when this episode comes out so people can check it out. But apart from that, we therapy is obviously always recommended. And if you're in Kansas, then obviously Soma. But apart from that, what are some grounding techniques or things to calm down that people with attachment trauma, once they realize it and start the healing journey with other things like therapy, what can they supplement that with on a day-to-day -day basis? What, like, what would you recommend? Maybe breath work, meditation, taking a walk in nature. What are some things that could work for them? And maybe after that two-part question, you can explain what sometimes you do after a stressful day to calm yourself down. Yeah, no, that is a great question. I'm going to shamelessly plug that I did write a book last year that has like a bunch yes. of different, yeah, it has a bunch of different themes and questions that people asked on TikTok, on all these different social media platforms. And then it also has some of those um, like grounding exercises that where you go into detail of like, how do I actually work on creating regulation, like self-regulation in my nervous system? Um, yeah. And I think I want to add to that. I think when it's specifically attachment trauma, the biggest thing that we can do for ourselves is a know our triggers for like first and foremost, because if we don't, I think a lot of people just go through life, not knowing their triggers and they don't know how yeah. they are um, kind of projecting stuff onto other people or also getting in their own way with like the things that they do. So like, we have to know our triggers. We have to be aware of them. Then once we know them and it's, we're in that painful place of like, I know my triggers, but I don't know what to do with it. Um, a big thing that when people are in that, those early phases, I recommend them figuring out ways that they can create pause. That's what I call it, like creating pause. Because what happens mm -hmm. is when we're triggered, our brain immediately goes into that fight or flight mode or even uh, freeze or fawn or whatever it is. And so yeah. The more that we can give our brain some time to come back online and have our prefrontal cortex involved, the better able we are to really integrate ourselves into the way that we make decisions, that we respond. Um, and so when we're triggered as much as we can, because I know we can't always 
like go meditate on a mountain in the middle of the day. Like I know that's unrealistic, <laughs> but what if we could just like, if we find that we're triggered by something, instead of responding, at least have like a, hey, I'm going to go walk around my office real quick or go to the bathroom real quick and just like take some moments. And when we yeah. take these moments, I asked her is that like, it's, an, it's really important that we're not just, um, what is it? Uh, I'm forgetting the word. I need my uh, cup of coffee this morning. <laughs> oh man, ruminating, that's the word. That oh, we're not okay. just ruminating on what we're upset about, that we're actually mm-hmm. creating time that we're just like, we're trying to be as like intentional about being present. And that might mean like washing our hands in the bathroom and being like, I feel the water on my hands. And I'm like, Uh, you know, here's the soap and and like just trying to, and as your brain goes back to what you're, you're stressed about coming back and saying, (laughs) okay, like here's the paper towel. And like, just trying to kind of get yourself for at least, I mean, ideally we could do 26 minutes, but Uh if that's not realistic, take the time you can, because the more that you can create pause, the more that you can come back to things. And if they're not timely, I always recommend people give themselves time. I'll tell on myself, my own personal rule, because I have attachment trauma for sure. I, and I'm happy to like, I don't feel weird about sharing that if it's helpful. Um, I know in my own relationship, I've created a rule that I don't make any big decisions and I don't say anything um, like definitive about what I want to do in a situation for at least 24 hours after I've been triggered or had a fight with my partner. It's, I call it the 24 hour rule. Yeah. And usually, I mean, it's not, it doesn't, it's not perfect, but for me, usually that gives me enough time to have gone through the emotions that I'm going through to have cried, to be angry, to give myself space, to regulate, and to come full circle and be able to come back to my partner and say what I really feel or how I'm really thinking, or to even get curious, like if they really hurt me, instead of being like, you know, my, unfortunately my, my default, if someone hurts me, I, I want justice. Like I want them to like, me too. Apologize. That makes two of us. Yes. I want justice. And so if I give myself time, I can get out of, it's not that I don't set boundaries still. Like, I mean, obviously we still set boundaries and if someone's being hostile, you know, we say, Hey, like, let's come back to this. But like, I can come back and be curious. Like I'm actually curious. I'm more like, Hey, let's talk about it. What are, what's going on for you that you're acting in this way that I know is not you, you know what I mean? Or that you're saying these things that I know is not your norm. And so I'm able to be curious versus like seeking justice and, you know, whatever that, you know, all the painful stuff that comes up that are my own personal triggers. So my personal rule that you can borrow if it's helpful is 24 hours. Give yourself at least 24 hours before you talk and have that conversation. And like, especially if like, you know that you have big emotions and sometimes that's hard for people to lean into, but if you struggle with that, it's okay. <laughs> like just, just make sure you give yourself time to get back into like being able to talk about your big emotions without it being yeah. big emotional. <laughs> right. That's like kind of, kind of a silly way of thinking about it, but yeah. <laughs> no, I love it though. I love it. Just for a second, going back to, you were saying like taking time out and doing something and acknowledging, would I be, correct in assessing that when you're practicing mindfulness, right? Like you mentioned, like, you you know, get up, go to the bathroom, wash your hands, acknowledge it. Is it more important that 
you utilize that technique of mindfulness rather than what it actually is. So you could be washing your hands, you could be taking a walk, you could be cooking, you could be doing anything, right? It's more about the acknowledgement and being at one with what you're doing rather than the actual activity. Absolutely. It's the process, not what you're doing. Yeah. So like yeah. what it's the, like how you're doing something, it's not like you could, you could insert any sort of like activity, like you said, it's just that you're doing it in that specific way where you're, you're getting out of that, like you're getting out of your current state of big emotions and you're trying to really get yourself grounded and present as much as you can. Cause sometimes we may really struggle with that. And that may mean we just, our nervous system needs a little bit more time. And, yeah. and in those circumstances, it's like, as long as we can say, Hey, like I can take care of myself. I can figure this out. Cause I think for a lot of people, when they have big emotions, they usually get into trouble when those big emotions lead to impulsive behaviors, like drinking or going and doing stuff to like not yeah. feel it. Or when they feel like they need other people to fix their big emotions for them, that's when they usually can get into trouble and like relationship. Um, we call it gridlock where you're just like trying to get something from someone and they can't give it to you. And it's just so frustrating. So, so mindfulness is a strategy to take care of yourself, um, as yeah. much as you can, as much as you can in that moment, because sometimes when we're flooded, like if we're like all the way up here versus here. And so, I mean, there's levels of that, like you're going to have to experiment with yourself. Like what, like, yeah. what do I need in these moments? Um, you know, mindfulness works for people here typically. And if they're here, uh -huh. it's usually just like, how do I remove myself from the situation temporarily until I can be mindful? Yeah. So. Right. And patience is crucial for that, right? Because everybody, I would imagine for everybody, the actual time frame to do those things is probably varies depending on the person, depending on the situation, depending on how deep their trauma is, right? So patience is probably the one of the biggest necessities of all of that a hundred percent i mean it's it's a skill and it's not i don't think people are just patient or not i think it's like going to the gym and lifting weights like you have to practice it you have to be intentional um yeah. it's not just something that you have or you don't Okay, so normally we end with this, but I have one more question after after I ask this one. But where can people find you? Tell us. I know you have an insane amount of following on social media, especially TikTok. <laughs> but yeah, tell give us all your social media links. And after that, we have I have one more question for you. So okay, uh, yeah, you guys can follow me at Jenny. Well, the at Jenny J E N N Y A N N Helms H E L Amazon monkey s um and that can be on tiktok instagram youtube I'm trying to remember all the things that i have that's kind of silly that i don't remember all of them but those are the big ones i'll be YouTube, linking instagram. it anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. um so yeah those are the ones that i would recommend you know it's they're all consistently that uh username so yeah that's yeah. and what is your book called it's called Beneath Your Bullshit, <laughs> and it has an ah, asterisk over the eye, but yeah. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, it's basically how we can get un from beneath our bullshit and live a badass life. Like that's, that's kind of the tagline, so. 
Yeah. Normally we would end with that, but I thought let's do something a little bit different with you and end with what the tagline of this podcast is hope, right? If somebody is struggling right now and maybe they feel they've hit rock bottom aside from therapy and all that, what message would you tell them that one, the people who are struggling right now, as far as hope and that you can overcome this, what would you tell them that? Mm, That is a great question. I think for a lot of people, when they're in a hopeless place, the, the biggest lie that our brain can tell us is that we'll be stuck there, like kind of that things won't change. But I think it's, it's not even having hope in the fact that things are just going to get better and be great, you know, as soon as we want them to be, because that probably isn't realistic, but to maybe right. lean into the truth that the only thing that's sure is change. And so if you're feeling hopeless, if you're feeling in this like really dark, deep place, like the nature of the universe and how we are as humans are that change is inevitable. And so I I think part of hope is like, if you're feeling hopeless, knowing that that state of hopelessness, that state of depression or wherever you're at, like the only thing that's certain is change. And so to lean into maybe that truth, even if you can't foresee the goodness just yet. Wow. I love that. Thank you, Jenny, so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Neil.